For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. You sit, I'll stand. (laughs) What an amazing privilege it is to be reminded in Scripture, church, that we are the called of God, chosen in eternity past, called according to God's infinite love and mercy to follow the Savior. I pray that's descriptive of your heart this morning. I I love those words we sang earlier. O church, arise, put your armor on, hear the call of Christ our captain. Every Christian in this room is someone who has heard from the heart the call of Christ. Christ's call uh, to those whom he has come to save uh, is powerful. Uh, Christ's call is effectual. Christ's call to his elect people is irresistible. And so irresistible is this call of Christ to his own that they hear his voice and they recognize him and they follow him. Jesus said, this is John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. A saved person, a Christian is someone who hears from the heart the call of Christ 
and responds to that loving, effectual call to actually follow him. And this morning, we're actually going to enjoy Matthew's own testimony of that happening in his life, his turning from sin and self to follow Christ. So we're in Matthew chapter 9 this morning, uh, right where we left off last week, as it turns out. And and just to set this up for us, I I want to suggest to you that in, in the verses we're about to look at, Matthew paints the picture of his own conversion as if it is the pinnacle of a whole series of miracles he's been telling us about, all, beginning all the way back in, in chapter 8. And you might wonder, you know, what, what miracle could be greater uh, than Jesus um, cleansing a leper? Remember that one? I mean, what, what miracle could be greater than Jesus calming a raging storm at sea? What, what, what miracle could be greater than Jesus casting out a myriad demons? Well, says Matthew, it's the miracle of Jesus calling a single, sinful, self-interested heart, a hell-bound man to repentance and surrender to Christ as King. And I ask you this morning, has that miracle of mercy happened to you? How how would you know? Christian, are you looking for Jesus to work that miracle in the lives of the people around you? So much so that you pray for them, and you serve them, and you bear witness to them. Do you live to bring others to Jesus? Well, that's a bit of a wind-up, isn't it? Let's just read the text now, beginning in verse 9 of Matthew 9. As Jesus went on from there, he, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. And Matthew stood up and followed Jesus. Then it happened as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Remember, the setting is the Galilean city of Capernaum. Uh, Jesus and his disciples had been there in that sort of home base for uh, our Lord's Galilean ministry. And then they crossed uh, the, the, the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, Uh, Jesus liberated two men in Gadara from demon possession. And then they turned back and headed to Capernaum. And Matthew has been showing us, beginning in chapter 8 of his gospel, Jesus, God's anointed king, demonstrating his supreme authority over the works of the devil in God's world. Uh, Jesus has conquered disease Jesus has conquered the demonic. Uh, Jesus has commanded creation itself. 
All of this is to do with the sufficiency of King Jesus for the mission that he has come into this world to carry out. And all of it is a foretaste of that future day we just sang about when the king's authority will be unchallenged throughout the world. I mean, what a, what a thing that is to think about. Our future. That will be the kingdom of heaven in its fullness. And for now, uh, this kingdom is breaking into humanity and it's present in every heart in which Jesus reigns as king. Remember, the kingdom of heaven is a dominion whose people love God, whose people live out God's ways and gladly follow their king. In fact, that, that's true Christianity. Uh, true Christianity is not just thinking about Jesus. Did you know that? Real Christianity gets moving for the king, living for the king. And we'll see that in the account of Matthew's conversion. And this kingdom of heaven doesn't grow by means of politics. It doesn't grow by means of military might. It doesn't, it doesn't grow through self-improvement. The kingdom grows through this miracle of mercy. That, that is one sinner's heart, one at a time, surrendering to Christ as Savior and King. And, and, and I want us to notice in verse 9, and by the way, just so it's not awkward moving forward, we'll be in verse 9 for a while. So, so just settle in, get comfortable, it'll be just fine. It'll be just fine. But I want you to notice with me in verse 9 that conversion begins with Jesus. It begins with the seeking Savior. People don't save themselves. People, people don't turn to God all on their own. Jesus takes the initiative here. Matthew is not seeking Jesus. Jesus seeks Matthew. And as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew. So so when it comes to entering the kingdom of heaven, all who enter are called by the king. Unless you are so called, uh, you do not enter because you cannot enter. Salvation, the scripture says, is a work of God. It's not a work of man. God is always the initiator in salvation. And I pray that he is taking that initiative for his glory right now among us. I I pray, Christian, that you are uh, in the quiet of your heart praying that this would be so, that the Spirit of God is taking the initiative to save souls. People don't do this on their own. We heard from Paul's letter to the Romans earlier, Romans 8, 29, those whom he, God foreknew, uh, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he, Jesus would be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Now think about what the scripture is saying here. God has a people uh, chosen in eternity past to redeem from sin's curse. And those whom he has chosen are called the way Matthew is called. And Matthew wants us to know that he was called by the seeking Savior. Matthew, whose very name means gift of God. Isn't that interesting? Matthew means gift of God, is one whom the Father has given to the Son. 
as were the other disciples whom Jesus called, as are all who are disciples of Jesus here in this room this morning. Matthew heard in his soul the voice of his king calling him to himself. And I wonder if you are here this morning, no matter what the circumstances of your being here on a rainy Labor Day weekend, I wonder, is it possible it has something to do with you needing to hear and heed this effectual call of your king. You you need to be done going your own way in life. You, You need to leave behind the life that you've built apart from God. A life built on sinking sand. A life lived on the broad road to hell. Religious as it might be, you need to live that life behind and follow Christ from the heart. Is it possible you're here this morning that you might simply hear and heed this call from your king? I don't presume to know that. Salvation is a work of God. And lest you think you're unqualified... Lest you think Jesus would pass you by, that he he wouldn't seek after someone like you. I want us to just note Matthew's qualifications. Or better yet, let's just note Matthew's lack of qualifications, shall we? Still in verse 9, I warned you, Jesus saw a man called Matthew. Um, The word man, uh, I I don't mean to be tedious here, but anthropos, um, in the Greek, it has a double meaning. And the obvious meaning is that he's a, he's, he's a dude, uh, not a woman. Um, in Jesus' day, people were not confused about gender. Um, but, but listen, it, more importantly than that, more importantly than that, Jesus saw a member of the human race. Are you hearing this? The Hebrew equivalent would be Adam. Matthew is a son of Adam. He is... Uh, uh, belongs to that race that you all belong to by birth, me too. Like all sons of Adam, like all daughters of Eve, Matthew is born under the curse of sin. He's been born alienated from God. Just like you and I were born alienated from God. And like all humanity... Matthew is helpless within himself to restore himself to God. Unless God initiates his rescue, Matthew is lost eternally. Matthew is living day by day toward God's eternal wrath. But God graciously initiates Matthew's Rescue. Jesus, God in the flesh, God's anointed King and Savior has come to Capernaum for Matthew. And just like Jesus had gone to Gadara for those two demon-possessed men, 
They were to become trophies of his grace. Uh, So Jesus comes back to Capernaum now for Matthew. He is to be a trophy of the grace of God. The king has come to rescue him and claim him as his own. For the sake of clarity, let me just say um, a little bit more about this call of Christ our captain. So I don't want us to be confused about this. Jesus himself makes a distinction between the call that is simply heard with the ears and, and the call that is heard with the heart so that a person actually heeds the call. Those are two different things. In the same way, there are those who sit in churches Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and they hear the gospel and they hear the gospel and they're not lacking any information whatsoever and they remain alienated from God. They remain religious people, busy about their religion, yet alienated in God, with, from God in the heart. They've simply heard audibly the call. They've not heard with the heart to heed the call. And if sinners are to be saved, they must hear this gospel call audibly for sure. You and I are meant to speak the name of Jesus and speak of his work out in the community. Out there where people uh, don't go to buildings with crosses on them. People must know that God's eternal king, Jesus, came to this earth and, and lived the life that sinful man owes to God and yet has not lived and went to that cross and took the hell that you actually deserve from God and me too and, and, and rose again in victory. We just sang about that, didn't we? Victory in Jesus. He did all that to forgive you, to justify you before God, to claim you as his own. Amen? Sinners must hear this. That that means Jesus' people need to not assume everybody knows this. Everybody's heard this. This is not so. So there's a general call. All must hear the gospel in that way. By the way, that's why we're sending a team to Togo, West Africa, this fall. More on that next week. That's why the Clement family is selling their home and moving from here to rural Montana to spread the message of the gospel there. That's why you invite your friends and your neighbors to church. That's that's why you invite the unsaved into your homes, your life, rather than isolating yourself in Christian community. All must hear the gospel call. This is what it is to follow Jesus. But then there's an effectual call, a saving call. And you and I don't do that. This is a work of God. The saved are those to whom this call is heard from the very soul. The the, the conscience dead in trespasses and sins is, is made alive, is quickened, is awakened by the Spirit of God to believe from the heart upon Jesus. And, and this, this irresistible grace of God 
reaching the sinner's soul to bring about repentance, to bring about faith, surrender, salvation. Um, This is what Jesus refers to when he says later in Matthew's gospel, for many are called, but few are chosen. What's he talking about? Not all who hear audibly the call respond in faith. Just hearing the call with your ears then does not save you. Why am I belaboring this? There's not enough material for today. Why belabor this? Here's my burden. Why take in a doctrinal you know, excursus like this? Because I fear that in any group of people on a Sunday morning, there, there might be those who believe themselves to be saved because they've heard the gospel facts and they've nodded their head in agreement to the gospel facts and yet uh, they've cleaned themselves up a little bit maybe uh, and yet are, are not being changed from the inside out. They've not been born again to new life. They're not saved. And it begs the question, well, how would you know? And I ask that not so that we can look around the room and judge others, but so that we might do what the Scripture compels us to do, examine ourselves to see if we be in the faith. How would we know? Well, notice in in Matthew's testimony, short as it is, That conversion always involves an awakened sinner. An awakened sinner. Not someone who's just heard with his ears, but has heard with the heart, with the soul. And I I ask you, has has your soul been awakened by the Spirit of God? You follow Christ now because you can't help doing so? because you love him and, and, and you thrill to share him with others because he's just the best thing that's ever happened to you and ever will happen to you. Conversion always involves an awakened soul. Um, I, I want us to just consider Matthew's awakening, okay? You're still listening. We know from the other Gospels that Matthew's given name was Levi. Mark 2.14, and as Jesus passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. Same guy. Matthew's Levi. We, we know that. And it wasn't uncommon in Matthew's day uh, for, for people uh, to have two names, men in particular. Um, Simon was also known as it's a trick. <laughs> Cephas. Um, J- Jesus renamed him, right? Um, something else. Um, Thomas was also known as Didymus. Okay, there you go. Um, so, so in some cultures, you know, two names, not as unusual as we maybe think of that in our culture. But, but if a Jewish man was named Levi, uh, it was presumed that he descended from the original Levi, in other words, one of the Levites uh, whose job it was to serve in the temple. In other words, Levi was an honorable name, a God-fearing name. 
And we notice right away that this Levi has not lived up to his namesake. Uh, This Levi has most certainly not met his parents' expectations of him. The person he is here in chapter 9 is not who mom and dad thought their son would be. He's chosen instead to be a money-grubbing traitor to his own people. Rome, as you know, we know this passage, Rome allowed Jews to contract to collect taxes from um, their own people. And, and, and this man called Matthew, though he is Jewish, is, is part of the tax collecting machinery of the occupying enemy. Um, he is despised by his fellow Jews. Uh, Matthew has sold himself out uh, for the sake of material gain. Pleasure, comfort, earthly security, um, keeping up appearances, if you will. Uh, That's what matters most to Matthew, or he wouldn't be doing this tax-collecting thing. Matthew is absorbed by the things of this world. He, He lives for worldly things, worldly values. He, he's the epitome of the lust of the flesh and, and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. And Matthew's in good company because all of the people hanging out with him are doing the same stuff. And that, that one little phrase in verse 9, sitting in the tax office, says so much about this man born alienated from God. His life really looks like the life of one alienated from God. In his book, um, Twelve Ordinary Men, John MacArthur suggests that Matthew was a, was a low-level tax collector um, because he's shown here in chapter 9 manning the tax office himself. In other words, he's not sending someone else to do it. He's doing it himself. And, and it's interesting to me that that, that means Matthew... Um, did this face-to-face with his neighbors. They, they knew him not just by name and reputation, but they knew him by, by face. And they hated him. The sight of Matthew would have made them sick. He's a traitor. The point of all of this is Matthew is not the kind of person you and I would choose to build a church. Not at all. Matthew has not only cut himself off from his own people, he's cut himself off from God. Tax collectors were banned from synagogue worship, um, forbidden to sacrifice and worship in the temple. Um, Matthew was worse off than a Gentile as far as his Jewish neighbors would have been concerned. Um, Think about what that means. From from a Jewish perspective then... um, the corrupt system that was first century Judaism told Matthew that he could never have forgiveness. He's, he's just too far gone. He, he's one of those people. I wonder this morning, do you have any of those people in your life? The church people of Matthew's day would have said to him, Matthew, get away from me. The religious leaders of Matthew's day would have said to him, you know, some Levi you are. What a, what a shameful disappointment you are. 
It's no wonder your parents don't talk to you. Get away from us. But Jesus saw this man called Matthew, says verse 9, sitting there. And with irresistible grace, the scripture says, he called him to himself. You who wonder whether you're qualified. You who wonder whether the Savior would ever seek after someone like you. You're too far gone. I urge you to consider the scriptures this morning. Matthew could not have been more unlikely to be a follower of Jesus. And Jesus has set his eyes on Matthew to showcase the greatest miracle that we've read about in this gospel so far, the miracle of mercy that is the salvation of a rebel soul. I wonder, do we still, church, think of salvation this way? Not routine, not ordinary. You know, not, not maybe it happens, maybe it doesn't. But a miracle of mercy from God? Does your heart not thrill, you who belong to Christ, that you have been singled out by this merciful Savior? Despite all of your lack of qualifications to be a part of His church, Jesus delights to use the least likely, the least qualified, damaged people, damaged by the curse of sin when it comes to building his church. And it turns out, you're still hearing this, it turns out God's people are meant to proclaim Christ with this disposition in mind. There aren't those people who are just outside of grace, Don't bother with them. You and I don't know that. That is known only to the infinite wisdom of God. How do we know that Matthew's heart is being awakened toward God? You can tell I got stuck on this, which I know that means you're stuck on it too. This is a survivable thing, all right? Um, I want us to just think about what's implied in Matthew's testimony, and then we'll get back to looking at what is you know, explicitly stated in Scripture here. What, what's implied here? Matthew, Levi, hasn't lift, lived up to community expectations. He hasn't lived up to uh, his parents' expectations, his namesake, if you will. I would submit to you that Matthew hasn't even lived up to his own expectations for himself. Um, maybe some of you can relate to that. Growing up Jewish as he did, uh, Matthew knew the scriptures really well. And how do we know that? Because Matthew cites the Old Testament more in his gospel than the other three gospel writers combined. Matthew knew the Bible. He never would have imagined becoming the person he's become when we meet him in the first part of Matthew 9.9. Um, no, he didn't plan ahead to go to, you know, how to be a dirtbag school, that sort of thing. And, and the thing of it is, is nobody does. Nobody does. Not in their heart of hearts. He never would have imagined living so far outside of 
mom and dad's expectations, let alone his own expectations, let alone God's expectation. And yet it's interesting to me, this is why I'm foisting it on all of you, that, that in verse 9, um, his t- whole testimony is just one verse. Do you notice that? You did if you read the pastorgram. Just one verse. How long is your testimony? Matthew's is one verse. And he takes up very little space in that one verse. This is his autobiography, and he merits only one verse in which he says almost nothing about himself. Why? Because the Son of God has been in and out of Capernaum for some time now, loving people, liberating people, healing people, calling people to repentance and faith in Himself, calling people to follow Him, calling people to follow their King. So by the time Matthew actually meets Jesus here in verse 9, he is um, poor in spirit. He's mourning over his sinfulness. He hungers and thirsts for a righteousness that he does not have. How do we know that? Because we read the Beatitudes, right? And the context suggests that Matthew has been under conviction of sin and spiritual need. He longs for the forgiveness that legalistic Judaism says is not available to him. He's too far gone. How many of you know nobody's too far gone for Jesus? And then he meets this one of whom the angel had said, call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. How can Matthew then not repent and follow this king who has singled him out and said, come, follow me? And all of that is implied. And it's making some of you nervous because it's freelancing a bit, isn't it? What, what is explicitly stated? How do we know observably that Matthew has saving faith in Christ now? Well, look how complicated this is. Verse 9, and he stood up and followed him. He stood up and followed him. Matthew stood up and followed Jesus. Conversion always produces an obedient servant of the king. The Bible knows nothing of a follower of Jesus, or excuse me, a, a, a person who names Jesus savingly but doesn't actually follow Jesus. Sinful man made that up. That's a false religion. Matthew stood up and followed Christ. And I, and I beg you to hear this because Matthew's own testimony is not that he simply nodded his head in agreement to some propositional truth statements about Jesus that would later be called the gospel. We've already seen that demons do that. Remember that from last week? Or was it the week, it was the week before, wasn't it? See, I've already forgotten. But whenever it was, you remember that, right? The demons are more orthodox in their theology than some Christians. They're not confused about who Jesus is at all. Matthew's own testimony is not that he prayed a sinner's prayer. Self-righteous man had not made that up yet. Nor is his testimony that he'd memorized the doctrines of grace. 
and, and that he was starting to study the Westminster, Westminster Catechism and all that sort of stuff. Good as that stuff is, um, you know, none of that in and of itself saves. None of that in and of itself gives evidence of salvation. How do we know Matthew is saved? He stood up and followed Jesus. Jesus set the agenda, follow me. Matthew followed. Matthew began a new life in which he looked upon Jesus and actually followed him. Jesus related rightly to the Father. Matthew followed Jesus in that. Jesus only walked in the Spirit. Matthew followed Jesus in that. Jesus obeyed God's law from a heart of love toward God, and increasingly Matthew followed Jesus in that. Jesus proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom near and far, and and Matthew followed Jesus in that. Jesus gave himself to the cause of dying to himself, that he might love the unlovely and teach the ignorant and forbear with even the worst of sinners whom he came to save. And, and, and incredibly, Matthew followed Jesus in that. Matthew stood up and followed Jesus. And I wonder, church, are there some among us who have forgotten that to be a Christian is actually to follow Jesus? The gospel is not a cerebral exercise alone. Saving faith has skin in the game. Do you? Is that you? We want to be able to sing that last hymn we did from the heart, don't we? Oh, church, arise. And put your armor on, hear the call of Christ, your captain. How do you, how does anybody else know that you've heard the call of Christ, but that you've stood up and you're following Jesus now? Do you have a sense in your own conscience that in in tangible, expressed, often visible ways, you're now following Christ from the heart? Or are you a person who is still self-directed and self-pleasing and self-interested and you've prayed to invite Jesus into your heart, meaning you've asked him to come alongside you and bless everything it is that you've chosen to do, whether he's in it or not? There's always the danger of these things being practical and personal. Are we okay? Okay. If you read the parallel accounts of this in, in, in Mark and Luke, you notice that um, in, in, in Matthew's conversion, he actually left his job, his, his status, his wealth. Uh, he left all the, the trappings of his self-directed, self-centered life in order to follow Christ. Luke, Luke simply says, he left everything behind and rose up and began to follow him. And the lesson in that statement is not that everybody needs to quit their job, um, uh, give away all of their assets, you know, in order to be a disciple. In fact, the fishermen whom Jesus called, um, 
uh, Peter, uh, the, the sons of thunder, James and John, they apparently kept uh, their, their gig going, uh, at least as a side hustle, because they went back to it after the resurrection, very briefly. <laughs> but, but it's instructive that when Matthew shares his testimony here in his gospel, he doesn't even focus on all of the stuff that he gave up to follow Christ. It's, it's, it's as if that just doesn't matter to him. He doesn't even focus for very long about what a dirtbag he had been before he heeded this call to follow the king. What matters to Matthew is not who he had been, uh, not what he used to have materially. Um, The the lesson is simply that following Jesus is is, is costly. It's it's an about-face It's a complete change in priorities and ambitions and values because they are now the ambitions and priorities and values of the kingdom of heaven. Has that change happened with you? Is is that a decision that you've made? And you know, um, there are Calvinists here who, who hate that word decision. It makes them break out in a rash. And, and, the, and the thing of it is, is let, let me just say this as tenderly as I can uh, for the sake of, of, um, of clarity. Uh, you must make a decision to receive God's gift of salvation. Well, Pastor, you just said it's a work of God, so which is it? It's a decision you make. Because the Holy Spirit brings a dead heart to life so that you can do nothing but surrender willfully to your king. But God doesn't make the decision for you. You make the decision. Matthew hears from the heart and he's counted the cost of following Christ and the cost is now irrelevant to him in light of who Jesus is. Jesus is the pearl of great price. You'd sell everything for the sake of having this Jesus. A saved person knows she is freely loved by the king, freely forgiven, so washed and forgiven and accepted that, that when he commands her, she gladly follows. Her whole heart says, I, I will follow. He belongs to the king. That the kingdom of heaven is his now. He's a citizen of this kingdom. He's embarked on an adventure of serving and proclaiming the king in whatever context the king places him in. So here is Matthew. He's going to start watching the king. And where the king goes, he's going to go. Look at the cost in verse 10. Then it happened, and I think we're making tremendous progress, don't you? Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, what house? Matthew's house, not Peter's house. This is now Matthew's house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. Matthew's house, as as Mark makes clear in, in, in his gospel, Matthew had a pretty impressive house. I mean, he would have had to to have a crowd like this at his place. It it had been built by a a self, 
um, serving person, a, a self-interested person, someone who loved uh, material things, creature comforts. Maybe he, maybe he spared no expense at the time. Uh, but that man is now dead to himself and alive to Christ. He now understands that his things are really God's things. And he now welcomes the opportunity to use what providence has provided uh, in a way that honors the king, in a way that advances the kingdom. All of that to say conversion always produces a willing witness for the king. Whatever I've got, it's available It's at my king's disposal for the purpose of honoring him and making him known. And I serve a a loving and gracious king. He lets me use his stuff all the time. But it's his stuff. And Matthew gets it. This prized earthly asset that is his home is now a resource for the kingdom of heaven. And, And Matthew's accounting and writing abilities are now assets to be used to advance the kingdom of heaven. I wonder, do you ever think of your stuff and your abilities like that? I mean, not really yours, though you enjoy them, but, but, but belonging to the king for, for his purposes. And what does he do? He, he throws a party for Jesus. It's almost as if his very first thought is, well, how, how can I honor Jesus? He's not ordered to throw a party for Jesus. He's not pressured by the neighbors, certainly, to throw a party for Jesus. He throws this party, this banquet for Jesus, and he invites his friends so that they can meet the one who has called him and saved him. Many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. And you, and, you, and you just have to wonder, are you still listening? You just have to wonder, um, why would Matthew invite the dregs of society like that? I mean, this is, this is a motley crew that, that's gathered at, at Matthew's house, don't you think? Tax collectors and sinners. Matthew invites his dirtbag friends because that's who he knows. These are the only people who hang out with a guy like Matthew. And so he invites him. He starts there. Matthew's personal relationships are now an opportunity to influence others for Christ. Don't miss the simplicity of this. There there was nothing secretive about Matthew's decision to follow Christ. Uh, He he openly professes Jesus uh, to the point where he eagerly invites friends into his home that they might meet this one who has saved him. This one who has given to him so mercifully what organized religion can give no one. And I want us to notice here, I'll speed up a little bit, um, it's the religious people who first object to Matthew's inviting Jesus. I mean, you're going to invite the rabbi to your house? The Pharisees say that he's going to hang out with a bunch of creeps like that. 
Look at verse 11. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? The religious people are not rejoicing that a sinner came to Christ at all. They're upset uh, that he's still hanging out with fellow sinners. And in hatred, they point out that Jesus is hanging out with sinners. And the caution here for us is that when you keep going to church, even though you have no real heart of love toward God, that that's, that's kind of who you turn into. You're just mostly ticked off that people aren't like you. And I pray none of us is living in that direction, caring more about outward appearances than whether a sinner turns to Christ. And the venom, you notice, is being spit in the direction of Jesus' disciples who now include Matthew. Don't miss that. And Matthew has followed Christ. Listen, Matthew has followed Christ right into a fellowship of suffering. This kind of thing is going to happen for the rest of Matthew's life. The religious posers will hate him. The depraved Irreligious Gentiles of Galilee will now shun him. He is a man without a country, but he's a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. He cares not. How sweet, how kind that Jesus doesn't make the disciples answer the question. Look at verses 12 and 13, and we'll end with those. It's always good to end with the last verses, don't you think? But when Jesus heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This is not complicated. Jesus appeals first and foremost to just logic. Doctors go to sick people, right? That was one of the, the, the most ironic things. Oh, here we go. That was one of the most ironic things to me about the whole COVID thing. Remember the COVID thing? But the, the hospital was telling you, don't come here, you're sick. And it's like, what? I thought... I shouldn't have gone there. And, and, and what's difficult about it is how do you get out of it now? I mean... Doctors go to sick people. Christians listen. Where do the king's people go with the gospel? We go to sick people. We go to lost people. We go to those people because we are those people apart from grace. The only thing separating you from those people is the grace of God. And what a wake-up call this should have been to the Pharisees. Think about who the Pharisees were. We're almost done. Think about who the Pharisees were. They should have been the shepherds of God's people. They they were supposed to go get the lost sheep of Israel, all the little Levites that didn't meet mommy and daddy's expectations, not build up a wall of legalism to keep them out. How far they had strayed from 
the heart of God. And, and you know, this, this can be a wake-up call for, for any church, including this church. The mission of Jesus is not primarily a mission that only involves religious practices. D- don't think that. The mission of Jesus is a mission to people, real people, perishing, sinful people. So we might just ask ourselves as we wrap this thing up, um, do we associate with any of the Levi's in our world for the purpose of introducing them to Jesus? I mean, do, do we have a welcoming attitude toward those who need the Savior and might just meet Him through our friendship, through our hospitality. This is how Jesus builds his church. He uses the least likely and the least qualified by our measure. And people like Matthew and people like us. So, so when Jesus says, go and learn what this means, he means to those Pharisees, you know, you guys should spend some time thinking about this. The scripture from Hosea that you're so familiar with, think about what that really says. Is that really saying that God doesn't care about the sacrifices? Of course not. God had given the sacrifices. But what God had given was not a substitute to become a religious activity, a mindless religious activity that would take the place of God's compassion and love for the lost. It occurs to me that Matthew and the others, the other disciples, would be instrumental in fulfilling the prophecy that we began the service with. Think, think about what we read from Isaiah together. Isaiah 65, 1. I was sought by those who did not ask for me. I wonder how many of those are our neighbors. I was found by those who did not seek me. I wonder how many of those people are cutting us off in traffic now. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. The Gentiles were reached because Matthew's first readers got up and followed Jesus. So we should just go and learn what this means. huh? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this wonderful, brief testimony of your grace at work in the life of a man named Matthew. And Lord, I pray that you would so lift up your Son among us, Lord, that there would actually be sinners among us who would repent this day and follow you, Jesus. And that there would be saints this day among us who would, by your enablement, rekindle the desire that perhaps was once there to make you known wherever you've planted us. Lord, let that be our witness as your people here 
at Hayden Bible Church that we have heard this call, not just with our ears, but, but from the heart. And we've stood up and we're following Jesus. And we pray this for his name's sake. Amen.